uh, leaving one particular church, I failed not to teach you the whole counsel of God. So we're going to go through the Word of God tonight, Ecclesiastes. And a um, couple of couple stories I've been told real quick from the weekend. One man told me that a, that a, a guy he'd been praying for for two years that was lost as a goose in a hailstorm, as we would say in East Texas, came down and gave his heart to Christ. Another testimony, a family of four came down and gave their hearts to Christ. And just many, many testimonies. It was just in the second service Sunday, 53 people responded right then in that service alone. So that was just great, wonderful. And, you know, you can't make that happen. No man comes to the Father except the Spirit draws draws them. So the Spirit of God draws them. Well, tonight, let's pray together, and then we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, go through chapter 4. It's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God, and we pray that you will feed your people right now. Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. Lord, let that anointing that we have received teach us right now the good word of God. Will you pray this prayer, church? Say, Lord, give me wisdom I've never had before. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. All righty. Now, we're going to look tonight. Well, one of the outstanding things about chapter 4 is that the statement that we all know, two are better than one. How many have not heard that? We've all heard that verse, right? Two are better than one. And so um, last time we saw that there is a time on God's calendar for the fulfilling of every purpose. It's real important we understand this. There is a time and a season. We talked about the two words last week, uh, chronos, kairos. Chronos has to do with length or duration of a thing. Uh, Kairos has to do with the characteristics of that time period. And we call it a season. And there is a timing that God has for every purpose in your life and mine. There's a time for it. There's a time to do it and a time not to do it. There's a timing for it. I can remember when God laid his hand on me and began to move on me to preach. I wanted to go right then. Right then. I mean, I was just chomping at the bit, just drooling to preach. And I used to, I couldn't figure out why doors weren't opening for me. I even got my business cards made up and a, 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 a letter from some big name preachers to send out recommending me. And there wasn't one response. I mean, I, I could have gotten real rejected about it. Wasn't one response. And I, and I began to think, well, wait a minute, if God's in charge then for some reason he wants me waiting. I ended up going out into the woods and preaching to any squirrel that could hear me. I really believe today there are saved squirrels from that day. I used to go out there and just preach because I had to get it out. But then I realized that there was a timing for me to be released. And there was a time for me to sit still and learn as much as I could because here's what I saw. Everything I learned before the door finally did open, I needed it. I needed it bad. You need to dig those wells deep before you go out into ministry. You need to dig those wells deep. And so there was a timing for every purpose in Jeff Wickwire's life, and there is yours. And so 
the doors will open or close accordingly per God's timing. What we were saying last week is when the timing has arrived for you to do a thing, seize it, do it, because that timing won't always be there. So whatever season you're in, I like to say seize the season because it will change eventually. It it will not always be there. My all-time favorite pastor was Howard Knatzer. Howard Knatzer was kind of my hero. He was Beverly Hills Baptist Church pastor, and then he got filled with the Spirit and got a prayer language and swiftly got the left foot of fellowship out of the Southern Baptist Convention. You know what that means? That means kicked out. And his church exploded, Beverly Hills Baptist Church in Oak Cliff. We ended up in the Bronco Bowl Auditorium that seated 4,000 people, packed to the hilt every Sunday. And here was this man. He had snow white hair. He had piercing blue eyes. He had this commanding presence, this deep voice. And I used to walk up to him to say something to him and totally forget what I was going to say. He so intimidated me because he was like Moses up there. All right. One day after Kathy and I had been married, just real soon after we'd been married, Howard learned that he had terminal cancer. And it happened fast. I'll never forget being told that he had all of his elders and staff in his bedroom as he was passing on. And he held out that long, bony finger that I was so familiar with and said, Men, whatever you're going to do for Jesus, do it now. He was 53. Now, why did I tell you that? Because he thought he had years and years. Thank God he made the most of the time that he had. This man's ministry went around the world. And he was one of the first to trailblaze Christian TV, to put his church services on television. He was famous literally around the world. He'd go to Jerusalem and they couldn't hold the crowds. But at 52 or 3, that was it. What was he saying? While you have the chance... Seize it. Amen? There is a time. There is a season for every purpose. Uh, So, we've also seen that Solomon sought for happiness and fulfillment in the three most common attractions that people walking in the world uh, gravitate towards. Alcohol or drugs in our day. If you live in Colorado, pot sensuality, and work. We look for meaning and fulfillment in those three things. We, we look for, uh, we, we medicate ourselves with the alcohol or the drugs, and the, the sensuality, we think we're going to find fulfillment there, but we, you never do. And work, we think if I, if I really get the career of my life and do what I've always wanted to do and build something great and just, just fulfill that desire uh, for that golden career I've always had, then I'm going to be fulfilled. But so many people hit 50, 55, and go into deep depression because they realize that everything they thought their success was going to bring them didn't. There's still an emptiness. There's still something missing. And they can't put their finger on it. So Solomon decides emphatically that none of those things provided what he was hoping for. Now this time in chapter 4 where Solomon has a lot to say, we're going to see he's got a lot to say about the power of positive relationships. 
Now, he begins with a somber assessment of some of the unfairnesses of life. Now, what we're about to see that really bugged him, I guarantee at one time or another, either has already bugged you or will. Because he's looking at the unfairnesses of life. Look at verse, starting at verse 1 through 3, chapter 4. He says, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. All the oppression. And look, the tears of the oppressed. But they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power. But they, the oppressed, have no comforter. Now, here's what Solomon's describing. We've all seen this in life. You don't have to look far to see it right now in our country, in our world. Might against right. Power against helplessness. Those who are in positions of power, wrongly oppressing people who have no power and can't do a thing about the oppression they're experiencing. Okay? And and this drove Solomon nuts because he didn't understand how this could be God's world and he could be seeing this. You know, I talked to a, a man today and he told me, he said, my son walked away from God. And I said, why do you walk away from God? He said, what we can see is he really, it really began when he prayed for some things and those prayers didn't happen. God didn't answer them. So he assumed there was no God and he walked away. Now, some people look at the unfairnesses of life and they say, there can't be a God. Because if there were a God, he would stop this. He wouldn't let this happen. If this is his world, why do these things go on? Why is there a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mussolini, a Lenin? Why the communism, Marxism, socialism, all of the oppression and the evil that men do to men? How can that be and there be a God? It'd be God's world, God's universe. And some people look at that and decide, you know what? I'm not sure about God. And they walk away. Now, this is one of the things that was kind of sitting on Solomon's shoulder, speaking into his ear, saying, how can this be right? Where is fairness? And let me tell you something, church. Let me just shoot straight with you. God never promised that we would experience fairness. As a matter of fact, I think you're best off if you assume you are going to experience unfairness and don't chalk that up to being related to God towards you. Because we live in a fallen world where inequities happen all the time. Life's not fair, but God is good, one book said. I like that title. Life's not fair, but God is good. In the midst of all the unfairnesses of life, you'll always see that golden that golden thread of the grace of God carrying you through the unfairnesses, but not delivering you from experiencing unfairnesses. But nevertheless, Solomon had a problem with it. We, we think here of the despots, the, the communist regimes, and other scenarios where rulers run unchecked, trampling on the people under them with impunity, a lot of times making their lives miserable. Now Solomon mourns that the oppressed have no one to comfort them. Who's comforting the Christians in North Korea? There's an example. Who, who's comforting the Christians in Egypt? The cops, the Coptic Christians who are being slaughtered like sheep. Who's comforting them? Where's the comfort when people are martyred for the Lord? Sometimes the only comforter is the comforter, capital C, the Holy Spirit. 
But he says, I'm looking at people who are oppressed and, and they don't even have a comforter. They weep, but they have no seeming way of escape out of the oppression. Their lives are miserable. And so he goes on to say in verse 2, Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Now here's what he's saying. It's better to be dead than to live under constant oppression with no recourse and no comfort. Better to be dead. Now let me ask you a question as I continue here. Is he looking at things under the sun, S-U-N? Or under the sun, S-O-N here. S-U-N, isn't he? He's looking at life horizontally without looking up vertically and seeing the redemptive hand of God in everything. He's looking at it just under the sun as a natural man through eyes of flesh. He's saying, this unfairness is driving me nuts. This is not right. They, they would be better off dead than going through this. That's under the sun talk. Now, if somebody is saved, they have a totally different view of suffering, don't they? We know that he is able to make all things work together for the good. Now, all things include suffering, hardships, betrayals, tears, pain, illnesses, all things. We who are saved have a vertical view. We look at life through the prism of of God and the blood of the lamb and the promise of God that not one thing comes into our life that he has not promised. He will work redemptively through it to the glory of God. And it will work out for our good somehow, some way, someday down the road. That's, that's the promise. So if you're saved, you you don't see it like he sees it. You're all, they're all better off dead. I don't look at North Korean Christians or Egyptian Christians say, well, they're better off dead. I would never say that. It is to God's glory and he is in charge when his children suffer. I know that's hard to see, but it's true. Think it not strange, said Peter. This suffering you're going through. Think it not strange as if some strange or weird or unusual thing were happening to you. But rejoice on the other hand knowing that the same afflictions are being experienced by your brethren throughout the world. So there is a redemptive element to anything the child of God goes through, a a redemptive truth. But Solomon wasn't looking at it that way. It's all through the under the sun, negative, worldly, fleshly lens. And then, so he's on a roll. He might as well take it to the next verse where he says, yet better than both is he who has never even existed. Who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And better off if you had never been born. Now, can you imagine Jesus saying that? Now, he did say it to one man. I have to be honest with you. He said it about Judas. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. But otherwise, can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, better better off that you were never born? How would that make you feel? (laughs) Please don't ever say that to me, Lord. I'm so completely convinced from the moment of conception, you are a human being and, and you are a life and precious in the eyes of God. And he's got a plan and a purpose. And he would never say better that you were never born. But you know what? That's classic self-pity talking. How, how often have we heard somebody say in a moment of anger or sadness, I just wish I'd never been born. Your kids ever say that in your presence? 
Come on. How many of you as a child said that to your parents when they've tried discipline? I just wish I'd never been born. I wish you had never had me. Well, we did, dude. Shape up. You're here. But, but he said, right, better that they had never been born. Well, that's, that's not God talk. Now, commentator Matthew Henry, who's one of my favorites, said this about this particular verse. But a good man saved in Christ, though badly off while in this world, cannot have cause to wish he had never been born since he's glorifying the Lord, even in the fires and will be happy at last, forever happy. So in the middle of our sufferings, we trust the Lord. That, that's, that's, that's what Christianity gives you. Christianity gives you that lens through which we see life with hope, with redemption, that nothing ultimately defeats the child of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? He always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. He that has begun a good work in you will finish it to the day of Christ. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I mean, I could just go on and on. But thank God we have a lens to see life through that others don't. And that's one of the great pluses of Christianity. It's suicidal people come to this conclusion. I should never have been born. So let me just take my life. I'm amazed at the people who are checking out that way these days. Did you read? about Mick Jagger's longtime girlfriend, beautiful woman, gifted uh, designer, millions of dollars, popular, famous in the fashion world, and yet one day she didn't turn out for work for her own company. They go knocking on the door. They had to break in, found that she had hung herself. This beautiful woman. Now, is she living in sin? Yes. And sin will leave you empty. Sin will kill you. Sin will destroy you. Sin will rob you. It will gut you. It will always, always subtract from you. But when I read that and it showed her picture, you know, beautiful smile. And here she was. And she's just one example. Of course, the whole fashion world, just shocked that she did this. And Mick Jagger, uh, shocked that this happened. But you know who wasn't shocked? God. You know why? Because if all you have is a horizontal view, if you have no vertical hope, no hope of the redemption of God, of God being with you, of God walking through the valley with you and promising to take you to the other side, when you've got nothing but you to look to, it leads to meaninglessness and despair. So it doesn't matter what you have out here. It still leaves you empty. Interestingly, as I mentioned to you, Jesus actually spoke this about his betrayer, Judas. Look what Jesus said. The Son of Man is going to be, uh, just as it is written about him, he will go. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Look what Jesus said. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So having said everything I just said, when it came to Judas, Jesus said that he said this about him knowing what the fate of Judas would be in the next world. There is no hope here held out of alleviation or end of suffering or of ultimate restoration. It is a rayless darkness of despair. Judas betrayed Messiah. 
And so Jesus said, that one, better that he'd never been born. Just wanted to read that. Then verse 4, then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. Now, I'm reading the verse here. This isn't me talking. Here's the verse. Now, this is in the New Living Translation, but let me read it again. Then Solomon says, I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the winds. So what's he talking about here? Solomon here is talking about the keeping up with the Joneses. All the way back, hundreds of years before Jesus even came to the world, they had a problem keeping up with the Joneses. Can you believe that? And he said, a lot of the reason that many people want success in the first place is so they can keep up with the Joneses. And it motivates them. I've got to have what they have in order to maintain my status. Yet this too, said Solomon, is vain and it is absolutely meaningless. It's keeping up with the Joneses. I'll tell you, when you get delivered to the point where you don't care what the Joneses think, you've been delivered. I mean, you, we all got to get to the place where if, if they got a brand new vet next door and you got a little uh, 10-year-old Volkswagen you're driving around, I guarantee you your bills are cheaper than theirs. Just keeping up with the Joneses. That I got to have what they have, got to do what they do, got to live in what they live in. Do you know how many people are driven by that, spend their whole life living to keep up with the Joneses, to keep up an image, a status, the way they are perceived of success in life? They live for that, die for that, go to their grave having lived just to keep up with the Joneses. And Solomon observed this. He said that's their motivation for success, but it's meaningless absolutely meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Who cares what they think? Because to them, you're a hero one day, a zero the next. They pat you on the back one day and turn around and stab you in the back the next. Who cares what they think? We all need to be living for this, an audience of one. I am living for Jesus, not for the Joneses. I am living for Jesus. And all I care about is what he thinks. Most of the church in the West is not there right now. We are very, very concerned about what others think about us. But the fear of man, the Bible says, brings a snare. So we need to be delivered of it. So he said, that's just meaningless. Uh, Keeping up with the Joneses. It's just vain. Uh, Fools, he says in verse 5, fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. Now here's what he's saying. He's putting himself in the fool's mind and the fool's thoughts. And he says, the fool, perceiving that diligence and hard work lead only to envy and the rat race, the fool goes to the other extreme and he does nothing at all. And he dies in his poverty. He says, I'm not going to get in that rat race. I'm not going to live for the keeping up with the Joneses. I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to go the other way and just be a sloth. You know what a sloth is? It's a lazy man, a lazy woman. I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, uh, I'm not going to try at all. I'm not going to chase any dream. I'm not going to live for any motivation. I don't care about success. I am not going to play the game. I'm not going to try to keep up with the Joneses. So the fool folds his idle hands rather than working hands and it leads him to ruin. So you got both extremes here. Those who say, I'm not going to work for a thing. And those who say, I'm going to work 
and work and work so that I can have that car and have that house and have that image and have that respect and have the smile of men. Two extremes. Now here's what the lazy man concludes. And yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. That's his conclusion. I'd rather just have a little bit with quiet than two handfuls having to work hard for it, which is just like chasing the wind. That's, that's the fool's thoughts. Now, these are likely the words of the fool justifying his slothfulness. If I work hard, I'm only chasing the wind. I choose poverty with quietness instead. I'm not going to get out there and try. His conclusion, once again, is under the sun thinking. Do you realize that? Life without the redemptive hand of God. Because God, there's another reason, another motivation to do something. And that is for the glory of God. Okay? You can, you can live to keep up with the Joneses. Or you can choose to get out of the rat race and do nothing. Both are wrong. But what's the right choice? The right choice is all that you do, let it be done to the glory of the Lord and in the name of the Lord. For you serve the Lord Christ. So when I get up here and preach, this doesn't work for me. I am, this is Emmanuel labor. And there's a difference, okay? And I'm going to tell you, manual labor can be Emmanuel labor if you do it as unto the Lord. But this is Emmanuel labor for me. This is the gravy. Doing this right now is not work for me, though this is what I'm called to do, and this is what I do for a living. It's really, it's, 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 it's a joy to me, okay? And why do I do it? I don't do it to keep up with anybody. I don't do it for an image. I don't do it for a perception. I do it because he called me to do it, and I'm, I'm doing it as unto an audience of one. He watches me. I will answer to him. My reward will come from him, and so will yours. Now, I want to say something about work. The Bible teaches for even when we were with you. This is Paul talking to the Thessalonian church. Even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, read the last four words with me. Neither should he eat. Now listen carefully to me. There is a difference between charity and welfare that destroys. Listen carefully to me. I'm going to go where angels fear to tread for a minute. There is a difference between charity. Let me show you the difference. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told? Good Samaritan, walking down the road, he sees a man. He finds a man beaten up, left bloodied and robbed. He sees him on the side of the road. Jesus said that good Samaritan goes up to him, bandages his wounds, carries him to a hotel, pays for it, and makes sure that he is cared for. Jesus set that as an example for his followers to follow. That we are to help those, watch this, who can't help themselves. That's charity. When you help people that can't help themselves. Now, let me give you a, 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 take a little bit further. The good Samaritan, if he hadn't been a working man, he wouldn't have had any money to put that man in a hotel. You had to have somebody who was doing something with their life to help someone who couldn't help themselves. Welfare is when people choose to not work 
because they just don't want to work. They don't want to work. They're content to let other people's tax dollars pay their freight, which to my mind is theft. Now, so Pastor Jeff, that's not very merciful. That's not very compassionate. Stop a minute. You got to listen carefully to me because our church helps people all the time. We help people all the time who can't help themselves. But I would rather teach a man to fish than give a man a fish. In other words, if they can help themselves, according to the word of God, not Jeff Wickwire, but according to this verse and others, they should help themselves. But now we've got a nation split down the middle where half of our country is very content to allow the other half to pay their way. I'm going to say it again. That's, that's the same as walking up to somebody with a gun and saying, give me your money that you work for because I don't want to work. Same thing. Now, here's what's scary. What's scary is our government is increasing that tribe on purpose. That's what's scary. Because it reaches a point, it's a tipping point, and we're just about there. Where the entitlements, the, the cost of welfare, the various welfare programs, are going to totally break the bank. As a matter of fact, they already have. Now, the only reason I'm going into this is I'm called to teach the Scripture. So I'm not making a political speech here. Did you know that most politics are spiritual anyway? No, we don't, like, don't, don't mess with church and state. You've got to separate church from state. Well, really? Come on. Because most legislation is spiritual in its implication. So notice that he said, if any would not work, if he's able to work, he shouldn't eat. That's called, that's called the Christian work ethic, the Protestant work ethic, but really the Christian work ethic. Okay. Now, the only reason I'm, because our nation is in deep, deep, deep trouble with this whole entitlement thing. It is not compassion to help people endlessly who could help themselves. It destroys motivation. It destroys your dreams. It destroys the family. It destroys the fabric of society. And eventually that society will totally cave. And we have past societies to show us the same thing happened then that is happening right now. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Teach it, man. All right. Now, the, the Bible never places a seal of approval on slothfulness. And if you can work and don't, and you live off other people, use a sloth. I think of an animal when I see that, a sloth. I'm not calling anybody an animal. Don't run out of here and say, he called me an animal. It just sounds animalistic. Okay. Now, in the next passages, Solomon turns his focus on the downside of aloneness. Oh, we're going to look at aloneness here. Chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. Now he's observing a lot, isn't he? This guy had a lot of time to think, didn't he? I observed this, I observed that, I looked at this, looked at that, considered this, considered that. I think he thought himself into a hole. <laughs> he had too much time on his hands, but thank God. Now, he said, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. 
This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But he never asks. The verse goes on, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now to make money? Why aren't I enjoying life, in other words? It's also meaningless and a grave misfortune. Now, in these verses, we're shown a man. He, he's, he's a workaholic. He, has a, he works constantly. But he has no one to leave his riches to in the end. He's, he's alone in life. He doesn't have any siblings. He doesn't have any, a, a spouse. So he has no children, no siblings, no spouse, yet his lust for ever more money drives him on, drives him on, drives him on. Okay? He doesn't even stop long enough to say, what in the world am I doing all this for? How many of you have ever just, somewhere in your life, stopped and said, what in the world am I doing? Let me see your hands. What am I doing? (laughs) And, And then, why am I doing it? Okay? Solomon has observed this workaholic guy, and our our nation's full of them. They're the other half, workaholics. And he he said, I've observed observed this guy, and he's got nobody to leave it to. Who's he going to leave it to? And he's not even enjoying life. He's not stopping to smell the roses. He's not enjoying the fruit of his labor. He's not making any friends. He's not getting out there and and having a good time laughing, enjoying uh, the, 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 the things that he's earned. He's just work, 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 more work. Got to make more money, get more money, get more. Enough is never enough. Solomon sees this as a kind of madness. This alone man is greed driven. In his mind, never enough. Yet again, let's keep in mind, this illustrates man without God. This is man without God. If he had known the Lord, he would likely have learned to live by the following maxim. It's a scripture verse. All of us need this one. Are you ready? It's in Hebrews. It says, don't love money. Can everybody say that with me? Don't love money. Use money. Make money. You got to pay your bills. Enjoy some of the things money can give you, but don't love it because if you love it, you will enthrone it above God. Now the next word, be content with what you have. (laughs) You know, somebody that has contentment is so wealthy. They just wake up and they say, no, I don't have uh, the Lexus. I don't have the 4,000 square foot home. I don't take vacations to Hawaii. But here's where I am in life, and this is what God has given me. And while I still have my dreams and I'm not giving up my ambitions, I am content with what I have. Because there's people, folks, I promise you, that have billions of dollars and are not content. They're eaten up with the need for more, the drive for more. Got to make more, got to get more. For God has said, I'm never going to fail you. I will never abandon you. So you can afford to trust me right where you are and enjoy life right now. Listen, the the journey is so much more important than the arrival. Do you know that in life, I can look back now, I've been around long enough, 60, 60. I can look back. 
And I can see how fast decades go by. Bang, 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 bang. And I can also look back at, at um, just the way I've seen people do. And I've seen so many people that had everything. that They were eaten up on the inside because they were not content with what they had. And I can also look back and see that with all of your dreams and all of your ambitions and all the desires and all the things you want to achieve, the arrivals are so few compared to the years spent on the journey getting there. I was 10 years in college. It was five minutes of glory walking across that stage and grabbing that degree. But it was 10 years getting there. Okay? And, and, and so here's what I try to tell myself regularly. Jeff, get on your bike, go out to the bike trail, ride, cycle down that trail, take in the birds, the trees, the river, the weather, the beautiful creation of God. Slow down. Enjoy the journey. Because there's very few highlight big time arrivals. Does that make sense? You know, girls and guys, I think, oh, one day I'm going to be married for years. One day I'm going to be married for years. One day I'm going to be married. I can't wait to be married. Wear that wedding dress down the aisle. I can't wait to be married. And then they get married. It's over in 30 minutes. Then what? All those years getting ready. Oh, I can't wait to have a kid. Oh, can't wait to have a kid. Can't wait to have a baby. Nine months. There's your journey. And then all of a sudden, a few hours of total agony. I thought Kathy was going to kill me when she was having Jeremy. Because we went through all that Lamaze stuff. So I was saying, come on, breathe, breathe. The thing she said to me, I can never repeat in church. And in a few short hours, the the arrival was over. So you learn to enjoy the moment. Because we're going to hear Solomon say, as we go along through this book, we're going to hear him say a lot, um, enjoy what God has given you. Just enjoy the brief life we have on this earth. Walk with God, do right, help people, but enjoy the things that God has given you. Be content and enjoy the journey. Now, Solomon turns to a brighter note, that's about time, by talking about the power of two. Now look at verse 9. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And then he continues, verse 11. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Now, the benefits of being yoked together with another person are threefold, according to Solomon all of which come under the overarching truth that two help each other to succeed. They're able to accomplish things together that they could not have done alone. I could never start a church like this without Kathy. Never. 
Never. She keeps me out of trouble all the time. She remembers all the birthdays. She remembers all the anniversaries. I would never remember them. I'm sorry. I'm just being honest. I just don't think that way. She always has me signing cards. And I go, whose is this one? Now I'm being real transparent here. I care. I just don't think that way. I'm thinking vision, win people, touch the world, radio, television, blah, church. She's thinking, it's so-and-so's birthday. It's so-and-so's anniversary. And she says, you need to sign this card so they don't get mad at you and leave the church. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so anyway. Now, uh, they're able to accomplish things that they couldn't have done alone. Now, I want to make sure we understand that he's not necessarily talking about marriage. You read a verse like this and people say, well, I'm single, so, man, I'm in trouble because i got to get married so that verse can be true for me. This is not a marriage verse. All you single people say, amen, glory to God, hallelujah. We can see, we can see here uh, two Christians united in unity of purpose, friends. We can see accountability partners like the kind we uh, encourage and celebrate recovery. Celebrate recovery, people who are struggling to overcome giants. We, we always want them to get with another person and be accountable to them. And they hold one another's hand, figuratively speaking, and they walk each other through it. They, they fulfill the verse, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And two can conquer what one can't. Okay. I personally believe every believer ought to have someone that you can go to in an hour of temptation or struggle or depression or whatever and say, help me, pray with me, take my hand. The advantages of a positive yoking together are these. First, one can pick up the other in a fall. Now, the word fall here can mean mistakes, errors, sins, dangers, distresses. When one of the two is in trouble of any kind and and they are essentially fallen, they're under a load, under a burden, can't walk it alone, they're carrying too much weight, then the law of two says where one can't, two can. So when one of the two is in trouble of any kind, the other can hold him or her up. So that's the first advantage. Brother helps brother to resist temptation. While many have failed when they tried in isolation, but would have successfully withstood if they had had the support of others. Now, second advantage of yoking, walking in partnership with someone, two together provide warmth in the cold. Now, the nights in Palestine were very cold, and Solomon was thinking of this. And weary travelers often had only their day clothing to sleep in. So hence it was natural for them to lie together for the warmth. But I think there's really more to that than this. There's another application. Two believers can warm each other's hearts while they converse together about the love of Christ or sing his praises together. How often, with me, myriad of times, how often have we struggled against sin and Satan during the week? only to come to church and have our hearts warmed by other believers. 
That's what church is for. That's what church is for. This is why I believe the command to attend the gathering of the saints is so important. We have people out there now, and I got an email from one recently. Well, Pastor Jeff, you know, we, we just, uh, we're just not in church. And, um, but we're fine. We're good. Our, our spirits are good. We're walking with God, seeking the Lord, reading the Bible every day, but we're just not going to church. And uh, the intimation to me was, we don't need it. And I'm going to tell you, in love, they're deceived and disobedient to God. Because the Bible tells us otherwise. It says, let us not neglect our meeting together. Did you read that like I did? Isn't that what it says? Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage, here's the reason for church, encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Because it's very discouraging out there. This world's getting darker, folks. It's not getting lighter out there. It's getting darker. Our culture is going crazy. It's extremely stressful out there. So how do you counter that? You come to church and you warm one another's faith. You encourage one another, especially as we see the coming of Jesus drawing near. So you don't check out of church as he, as his appearance gets closer, you get more in church. And I read today in first Corinthians 16, it tells us that the new Testament church met at least once a week, at least once a week they met. And we're told in Acts, they met daily house to house, but they had corporate gatherings at least once a week. The word encourage is from the Greek word parakaleo. Now I know that's Greek to you. (laughs) Para, take the first word, para means close beside and kaleo is to call. Now the Holy Spirit is parakletos. The one who is called to stand beside us. He's our comforter. When we encourage one another, we're acting just like the Holy Spirit. We are really vessels of the Holy Spirit. We're called to come up beside one another and say, I encourage you in the name of the Lord. You had a rough week? Hey, God's with you. He's going to strengthen you. I'm going to pray for you. I see God all over you. He's not going to fail you nor forsake. He's going to provide for you. If you lost your job, let me encourage you. Hey, I lost a job once too. God's going to give you a job. Don't fret. We come together and iron, as iron sharpens iron, we sharpen the countenance of each other. We brighten one another up. And that's the purpose of the gathering of the saints. So important. So that's how you give warmth spiritually to somebody yoked together. So with two instead of one, one can pick up the other and two can provide the warmth and encouragement to each other. And then one last thing. Third, Solomon points out that two can defeat an enemy better than one. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, he says, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Going all the way back to the beginning of the Garden of Eden, Satan knew that he would not be able to bring Adam and Eve down together. He waited till she was isolated and alone. And then he moved in for the kill and took her down. If they had been together, I guarantee you, Satan would not have gotten through them. He waited for an isolated person. In Solomon's time, it was common wisdom to never travel the lonely roads alone. Robbers often lay wait in ambush, looking for a single traveler to pounce upon and rob. 
So too, the thief of our souls attacks most successfully that believer who travels the king's highway alone. So I need you, you need me, we need one another. We need to be one anothering one another. Okay? Now he closes out his statements on unity by adding, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now again, in Solomon's time, the cord of three strands was the strongest rope made. Three-stranded rope. And this is likely what he had in mind. If two can gain all these advantages, then what can three do? (laughs) Okay? And then when I perform weddings, a lot of times I'll tell the two people as they're standing in front of me, they don't remember a thing I say, but I tell them anyway. (laughs) And so I say, um, listen, the two of you are coming together in marriage, and God blesses that. But if you bring him into it, that threefold cord, when there's three of you, there's two, and if Christ is the head of the home and the head of the marriage, Satan has a real difficult time ever tearing that thing apart. Okay? Now we're headed towards the end. Amen. Now the next three verses are difficult. They're difficult. If you read them in the New King James or the King James, you're going to be scratching your head. They're about the futility of political power as it relates to the easily swayed affections and loyalties of man. Look at these verses. Verse 13, last three verses of the chapter. It says, It is better to be a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who refuses all advice. Now let's just stop and look at this. Here we have an up-and-coming young person in juxtaposition to an old king who no longer receives counsel from anybody. He's been around a while. He doesn't listen to anybody anymore. And he's just kind of firmly ensconced in that throne. And yet here you got a a young person, a young up-and-comer with his eyes peeled on his position. Okay? Now verse 14, such a youth could rise from poverty and succeed. He might even become king, though he has been in prison. What does that mean? I personally believe that... Uh, This is an allusion to Joseph, who arose out of prison to become second only to Pharaoh in authority and power in Egypt. So I think he's got Joseph in mind when he talks about this young up-and-comer. Even coming out of prison, he rose to the second in authority over all the land of Egypt. But then verse 15, but then everybody rushes to the side of yet another youth who replaces him. Now here we see the common occurrence of older rulers... Politicians, authority-type figures who used to be adored, admired, and praised. We can name some names, but I'm not going to. And yet the glitter one day wears off of this ruler, this president, this king, whoever. And a younger man rises up to challenge them. The people, always drawn to the new and the novel, run and support the new guy. Always. Why? Because he's new. Why? Because they're tired of the old guy. We see this perfectly illustrated in the overthrow of David by his own son, Absalom. Remember that? We're told that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And the people with Absalom increased in number. And the hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom. Interesting the way the Bible puts it. This young son of David stole the hearts of the people. Worked them. Manipulated them. Made promises to them. If I were king, you wouldn't have to put up with this stuff. If I were king, you'd have so much better off. You'd be so much better off. 
If I were king, you'd have this, that, and the other. Too bad you're under him. And the old, ensconced person is always undermined by the younger one. This is the nature of politics. It's the nature of a lot of things. It happens in churches all the time. So even someone as charismatic and inspirational as King David was vulnerable to the principle of a new younger man chosen over an older familiar man. But then look what Solomon points out next. And this is the way the cycle goes. If I can get to it. There. Verse 16. Endless crowds stand around him, the new guy. This is a verse. But then another generation grows up and rejects him too. So it's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. So the young guy, the one of the older guy's position, finally gets it. But then another younger guy comes along under him, and the people switch from him to the new younger guy. And so goes the cycle. What is the message? People are fickle. People are, people are fickle. Their emotions are fickle. They, they think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread one day, and then they wonder why in the world they ever thought that the next day. They're fickle. That's why you do what you do is under the Lord, all of you managers and leaders and presidents. You do what you do as under the Lord, not for people, not your bottom line. Because the Lord won't say, you know what? I'm kind of tired of you. I'm going to go to the younger guy. Mm-mm. Thus you have the cyclical nature of politics and leadership. This too, says Solomon, is vain and meaningless. What's the use of leadership if you're just going to be replaced one day and forgotten? But once again, this is under the law of reasoning. The New Testament answers this question by assuring us that those in leadership, that there will be an eternal reward for our service, no matter what men do or don't do for us. Paul encouraged ministers and leaders, let's stand and read this together, can we? Read this with me. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, one more, and this is my favorite, and we're done. Read it with me. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Say with me, there is a reward. No matter what men do or don't do, my reward is in him. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Can you hit that very next one, Melanie? And and I'm trying to remember. Next week, enjoy what God gives you. See, I was giving you a little taste of what's coming next week. All right, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for the wisdom in this book. This man who was on the edge in midlife turmoil, looking for meaning, backslidden from God. We see him coming around, getting a grip, and dropping pearls of wisdom our way as he journeys on. We thank you for this tonight. Help us, Lord, to serve you the Lord Christ, knowing that one day our reward comes from you. In the mighty name of Jesus. Take a minute and just say, Lord, I give you my work. Help it to become for me Emmanuel labor. In Jesus' name. Let's sing a song.